Ted Giles is a senior consulting fellow with the Russian and Eurasia program at Chatham House. Here has supported Chatham House in its Russia-focused research since 2013 and previously worked with BBC Monitoring Service and the UK Defence Academy, where he wrote and advised on Russian military, defence and security issues, including human factors influencing Russian security policy and Russian strategy and doctrine. Uh, and I could go on, uh, there's a huge introduction there, and I gave the full introduction to the first interview on the channel, this is the second one, but really I want to jump into the questions. Um, because a lot has happened since we last spoke, but we're also been uh, doing a series of fantastic interviews, which you uh, really were instrumental in, in helping to organise, and that's with the experts at Chatham House. Um, we're now nearing the end of that series, uh, and we've addressed a, a sort of a different, uh, I say, fallacy of, of Russian propaganda in each one of those, and a different reason why Ukraine should be armed, and we should not fall for uh, you know, Russian attempts to to prevent that from happening. Um, before we jump in to the topics in the Chatham House paper, let's address the elephant in the room, which of course is the death or the untimely falling out of a window out of an aeroplane of uh, Prigozhin. But it wasn't just Prigozhin, was it? There were other key Wagner figures. What are the implications of, of this event? Well, this is rolling on as a media story that somehow doesn't seem to be able to die, just like some people are convinced that Prigozhin hasn't died. We're on day five and still people are focusing on, on what it all means and how it may have happened. And of course, Russian state propaganda is still tying itself in knots and looking around for whom to blame because they can't actually point the finger at the Kremlin or the Russian Ministry of Defense. So they come up with an ever more inventive list of foreign powers that might have had a hand in Prigozhin's demise. What it all means? Well, not a great deal. Nothing really changes as a result of everything that we've heard since he died. The DNA analysis, supposedly, that indicates he was actually on board will probably never be subjected to any kind of independent objective scrutiny. The air accident investigation, similarly, it's never going to be transparent, it's never going to be reliable. And the longer, the, the more time goes by after the crash without Prigozhin popping up again somewhere in the world, the more certain it does seem that this time he is actually dead, unlike previous plane crashes where he's been reported killed. It's not really much difference to, to Putin standing in the international stage, but domestically, of course, tying up this loose end, getting rid of Prigozhin does actually make him stronger because there was an anomaly. There was something that, uh, that didn't fit in the normal routine of Russian politics. He had stood up to the Kremlin. He'd stood up to Moscow, even though he didn't directly challenge Putin, he said. He challenged Russian state power and somehow was allowed to survive. And this was the, the strange and anomalous thing about it. And of course, for as long as he remained unmurdered, that meant that he was a dangerous precedent because it showed to others that they could follow the same path. So now that loose end has been tied up, things are back to normal. And Russia has demonstrated once again that this is not a country with which we can deal like any civilized nation. Instead, it's somewhere that resolves its domestic political problems through mass murder. It's not just Wagner senior commanders that were on the aircraft, but flight crew too, who probably had absolutely nothing to do with the crimes of Wagner, but are just collateral damage when you want to kill them. And uh, of, of course, there's there's a pattern as well, isn't it? The media tends to fixate on this one individual because of his sort of brutish uh, past, but also the fact that he was a bit of a, a you know a teller of truth to to power. But there have been a pattern of arrests, haven't there, with uh, uh, Girkin Strakov, 
and there have been others that are being silenced. There are turbo patriot, uh, sort of Z patriot channels that are being shut down and muted. So there's a wider pattern of suppressing dissent and any criticism of Russia's performance in the war. It's true, but this isn't exactly a sudden development. This is more a part of a process because the moves back towards repression, the moves back towards suppressing any dissident views, towards suppressing any criticism of the state has been ongoing for some time. And it started like so much else in about the middle of 2021, or rather the repression didn't start, but this sudden acceleration, this sudden evolution back towards a more totalitarian state started in mid-2021 when Russia both at home and internationally, seemed to cast off any concern about its reputation, any concern about the damage it might do, and push forward for what it wanted to achieve. This was, of course, the time when they were full steam ahead preparing for the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, but also severing international relationships with the West, left, right, and center. And this was the time when they moved from uh, controlling the domestic opposition, the political opposition, to eliminating it altogether. So all of this is, is part of a pattern and it's part of a trajectory. And sadly, the trajectory that we've seen for well, really a couple of decades now is the one that Russia so often follows towards repression, towards aggression, towards this totalitarian state. And we are not at the bottom of that trough yet. Now, Russia has a long way further to go before things get as bad as they have been at previous times in its history. And then, of course, eventually, a couple of decades or more later, Russia starts to climb back out of it again. And is there a correlation, perhaps, between the weakening of the centralized state and the need for more repressive measures? That's certainly one of the recurring stories throughout Russian history. Anything that weakens the power of the state uh, turns into chaos and disorder within Russia, which then needs repressive measures to get it back under control again. And that's played out, well, at least once during our lifetimes, if not more, with the, the end of the Soviet Union marking the peak of that liberalization of Russia. And then, as so often happens, the next leader that comes along recognizing that this was a terrible mistake and you need to get a grip on the country again by reinstituting the the comfortable old repressive measures that Russia knows so well. So yes, it's it's part of a very predictable pattern. And you posted a very interesting thread on Twitter which sort of tries to unwrap this. Not only is this behavior you know, not an enigma, as Churchill once labelled it. Um, it is It is predictable. You can model it to an extent. You can even make some kind of projections, maybe not in the short term, but in the mid to long term. You can project out roughly what is going to happen and what is going to happen to individuals like Prigozhin. But you point out that the in the West, in the media certainly, but perhaps also policymakers to an extent, seem to get Russia wrong over and over and over despite the fact that the, the patterns are trying to sort of, you know, tell us what's going on. I think you're referring to uh, something I reposted uh, just yesterday, which was actually a thread from back in 2019, before the, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, before I think most people had started to really realize the true nature of Russia and which direction it was heading in. It was um, based on the book that I would uh, recently published then called Moscow Rules, and the subtitle of that is What Drives Russia to Confront the West? And yes, it was exactly about these recurring patterns in Russian history and what they tell us about where Russia might 
be going next. And unfortunately, uh, what I was predicting at the time was that unless there was some kind of means of tackling or addressing this basic contradiction between Russia and the West about the countries in between Russia and the West, the countries that surround Russia and we think of as sovereign, independent states that have a right to determine their own future, but Russia thinks of as part of its empire, that unless that was actually dealt with, the only way it was going to be resolved was through some kind of armed confrontation. Now, I didn't know any better than anybody else did that the site of that confrontation was going to be Ukraine, but it was entirely predictable that this would come to a head and Russia was eventually going to assert itself when it felt strong enough to do so, and also when it felt confident enough to do so, that it wouldn't suffer any disastrous countermeasures from the West. So the, the Moscow Rules book traced these patterns, and it identified the point on this, this sine wave of, of Russian history that we were at, and saying things were actually going to get a lot worse before they got better. That wasn't a very popular message in 2019, because you still had people who were optimistic about Russian civil society, about being able to build relationships with Moscow, about uh, international ties with Russia and where they might actually lead the country to. But uh, sadly, it's turned out to be entirely correct. And we're going to get into the uh, Chatham House paper, which is part of the uh, series that we've been publishing on the site. Um, let's dive straight into yours, because I think it really deals with, uh, it leads on from the point you've just made, about certain fears that we have about Russia, whether they'd be terroristic threats or whether they're, they're fears about what might happen to Russia. And that in some way guides our behaviors and our policymaking. That causes us to tie our hands behind our backs and in some ways seek to tie the hands of Ukraine behind their backs when they're fighting against Russian aggression. Now you tackle the fallacy that a Russian defeat is more dangerous uh, than a Russian victory. Um, and this, I think, is one of the most interesting ones, because if you speak to any single Ukrainian, um, this is not a fallacy any of them share in any shape or form. In fact, most of them look forward to the disintegration of the Muscovite Empire, and they see it as the only way to actually create some form of stability and security in the region. That's absolutely right. And that's not just in Ukraine. That, uh, like so much else of getting Russia right, actually follows that band of countries along Russia's western frontier. Talk to anybody in the Baltic states, for example, they'll have the same approach because they know what is necessary to keep themselves safe. Unfortunately, that attitude isn't universal. And when it comes to major partners in the coalition that is supporting Ukraine and uh, supposedly trying to assist it to evict the Russian invaders, they sometimes are convinced that a, a defeated Russia is going to be more dangerous than a victorious Russia, which is entirely counterintuitive to anybody with a grasp of what Russia is, how it operates, and the history of how it's interacted with, uh, with Europe in the past. Now, the problem is that uh, the United States is one of those countries that to some extent has its policy in the grip of this idea that you cannot defeat Russia too much, if at all, because if you do, then you risk nuclear Armageddon. And in that respect, they have absolutely succumbed to this long-term intensive campaign that we've seen coming from Russia of trying to convince people through every possible medium and through every possible influencer that if you offend or impede Russia, the nukes are going to start flying. 
that has been imbibed and inculcated within the U.S. policy system, primarily in the in the shape of the White House and President Joe Biden. And that puts a break on what is being supplied to Ukraine. And more than that, when something is supplied to Ukraine, on what can be done with it. The fighting behind one with one hand tied behind your back that you refer to is is a pretty good description of being supplied with weapon systems, but not actually being able to do anything that would really upset the Russians with them, like uh, striking into Russia itself. That gives Russia safe havens from which it can strike uh, across Ukraine at will. And it is a, a strange and bizarre restriction on a country that is fighting a war of national survival. So to sum all of that up yes there is this this conviction that he is being that is incredibly hard to overcome that russia is going to be a worse problem if it is evicted from ukraine than if it is allowed to stay and you see this coming through in so many policy prescriptions for how to bring the war in ukraine to an end while giving russia some kind of victory even if it's not phrased like that territorial concessions so russia stays in control of various parts of of ukraine particularly crimea which which is a prime candidate for this, handing Russia what it wants in the hope that then the, the war will be ended, which of course it won't. It will just be temporarily put on ice until Russia chooses to defrost it when it once again feels strong enough and confident enough to do so. And there's two questions that, that emerge from that. I think the first one is more uh, sort of, well, partly tactical, but also strategic. The other one is, is a big leap of imagination will come to to that in a minute. But the tactical one is, of course, is that we have seen insurgent groups on the territory of Russia. Um, and that led to Zelensky's rather rather good joke last week when asked about, uh, you know, surrendering territory uh, for NATO membership. He suggested that uh, they should surrender Belgorod, uh, which, um, yeah, given that that's where the majority of the insurgent action is getting on, was, was quite, uh, quite amusing. Um, but it does seem that one way to short circuit the war and not necessarily have to fight for every inch of territory is to take the fight to Russia, to engage in hybrid war tactics, uh, to destabilize that sense of security and uh, inviolable territory that the Russians uh, seem to have. There are some, I would say, sort of rumors or suspicions that the US may have leaned on Ukraine and said that that kind of tactic is not acceptable. Um, that's a real concern, isn't it? Because the alternative route, fighting this for every inch on the battlefield, is going to cost many, many Ukrainian lives, many thousands, tens of thousands. Yes, it's worth being a little careful with the language we use. When we talk about insurgent groups in Russia's border regions, it's not entirely clear who is doing what they're, where they've come from and so on. And uh, neither should it be, of course. This is something which has to remain deeply, deeply covert. But that um, suspicion that the United States has said, knock it off, would fit with the overall pattern of what the US is saying to, to Ukraine. In fact, not only about how to win the war, where Ukraine identified a long time ago that one of the key centers of gravity that they had to target was Russian public opinion. They needed it to bring it to the, to bring it to the attention of the Russian public that they were actually involved in a war and there were costs and consequences from that. But more broadly as well, what we've seen playing out over the last few weeks is a, a campaign which seems to be trying to tell the Ukrainians they're doing it all wrong and also a whispering campaign within 
Washington briefing the media anonymously about how the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive is doomed. Now that fits very neatly with some of the some of the behaviors and some of the messaging that we've seen from some parts of the US government that is absolutely petrified of the prospect of a, a Ukrainian victory and appears to be working against it. It also perhaps talks to is that if we take the Ukrainian and the Baltic Polish argument that Russia needs to be diminished as an entity, it needs to in some ways uh, I don't use the word collapse because that implies some kind of chaos, but but uh, the territory of Muscovy needs to in some ways be broken up. Um, if there is a fear of that uh, in, say, Western capitals, including Berlin and Washington, it also suggests that thinking is not being done about how you would deal with those entities if that became the reality in Russia. Well, you don't need to break Russia up in order to change its mind about whether it needs to evade its neighbors. That is one of the, the ideas. That's one of the, the scenarios which Russia has also been pushing very actively, saying if you if you defeat Russia, there will be chaos, there will be disorder, there'll be fragmentation, and then you won't know who's in charge of the nukes. It's a key part of the messaging saying don't push Russia too hard. Of course, it's completely contradictory. On the one hand, Russia is the strong power that will lash out and defeat its enemies with nuclear weapons. On the other hand, it's so fragile that it will fall over with a breath of wind and then the nukes will fire themselves. So these two messages have to have to coexist in the minds of people who subscribe to these ideas. But when you look at the way in which um, the, the Western coalition has been supporting Ukraine and what it's actually supporting it to, yes, you do still have these very serious doubts in some quarters about what they should, what Ukraine should, in fact, be allowed to, to look for in terms of victory. And Crimea comes up time and again as the thing that Ukraine is expected to give up, despite the fact that Crimea uh, in Russian possession effectively puts a stranglehold still on the Ukrainian economy. It's, it, it's, uh, it would seem that for economic stability, for military stability, uh, and to dissuade further Russian aggression, that needs to be taken in a clean fashion. Now, I know that there are some people who subscribe to that, uh, and many on the channel, including uh, Ben Hodges and uh, and many other sort of military thinkers, um, do do point this out and, and believe that militarily uh, it makes absolute sense uh, to be able to control that. Um, now, I'm not going to talk about the sort of challenges of doing that. I think we'll we'll, we'll save that to the uh, to the sort of the military experts. In fact, it's quite difficult to imagine at this point. Um, but the Russian narratives, of course, exist to try and dissuade people from even thinking that these things are possible. And we've been through a number of the of the fallacies. Um, the one that we are hearing more and more uh, in the run up to um, the U.S. election, and we have a number of new Kremlin uh, sort of sock puppets to deal with. Um, they're really putting forward this argument that the war is costing too much, that the West needs to restore economic ties to Russia, etc. And they point out these, these vast sums of the US military budget, which in fact, when you put them into context, seem rather rather small. They're a sort of almost like a rounding error of the, uh, the annual US defense budget. How in your view, can we counter these uh, Russian propaganda messages, which are going to get louder and louder in the mainstream media? 
Well, unfortunately, of course, it's not just Russian propaganda messages. They are also being picked up and repeated by people in the United States who should know better, as well as those that are actively working on behalf of Moscow. And it, again, the U.S. government has not helped itself in terms of combating this narrative, because there are some very easy and straightforward things that could be pointed out about the holes in this story. The idea that uh, U.S. taxpayers' money is being uh, taken away from them and funneled straight into Zelensky's pockets, which is a, a favorite motif of this uh, of this campaign against aid to Ukraine. But yes, as you mentioned, the, the sums involved relative speaking to um, U.S. overall defense spending are paltry. They are, they are back pocket change, but also they're not actually being donated to Ukraine. What doesn't get pointed out nearly often enough by the people who are justifying the spending for Ukraine is that this is, these are sunk costs. These are weapon systems that have already been bought and paid for and purchased long ago and are now being delivered to Ukraine in order to be used for precisely the purpose that they were actually bought for in the first place. Where that's not the case, the money is actually being invested in the US defense industry in order to rebuild and reconstitute those stocks of weapon systems that are being shipped to Ukraine. So it is not in going to Ukraine in the sense that people imagine, but for some reason, the United States is reluctant to point this out. It also, of course, shows up the, the difference in terms of, uh, of level of support when you consider it by volume, by absolute volume overall, in which case the United States is far and away the biggest donor, or by proportion of what could be donated and what actually Ukraine is asking for, where, again, the, the United States takes a back seat because you have other countries that are donating proportionately far more, including whole sectors of military capacity in the con context of some of our, our smaller NATO allies. Again, because they know that they bought these weapons for a purpose and Ukraine is going to use them for that purpose, neutralizing the power of the Russian military that threatens us all. And another interesting point, which a number of uh, sort of uh, military types that I've, I've spoken to also suggest that a lot of the equipment being given to Ukraine is actually uh, older generations of kit, which uh, in, a, in a sort of classic sort of a treasury type operation, these are systems that are about to be sort of scrapped or decommissioned anyway. Um, but they are listed as if they have, as you say, are not sunk costs. Uh, they're not about to be replaced. And of course, in military terms, this is great because if they hand this stuff over to Ukraine, they can have lovely new shiny contracts with uh, American defense manufacturers to create the next generation of this equipment. So there's some extraordinary kind of, um, let's say, uh, creative bookkeeping going on behind the scenes. Well, if only it were the case that everything is being replaced. Uh, but it's not. The orders are not being placed with the defense contractors, with the manufacturers to actually replace what is being expended. And that's what lies behind some of the American objections to providing uh, providing Ukraine with more HIMARS, with ATACMs. Some of the arguments against that is that the United States doesn't have enough for itself, but the orders simply aren't being placed. In terms of stock rotation, yes, it makes sense. You give the oldest uh, material, the oldest weapon systems to Ukraine if they're about to be written off anyway, in exactly the same way as you take the oldest bottle out of bottle of milk out of the fridge to use first. That doesn't necessarily mean that these are old, decrepit Western weapon systems, simply that they're reaching the end of their service life. And who knows, it may even be less expensive to ship them to Ukraine than to dispose of them. And uh, another interesting point one of my uh, speakers made, there's been a lot of uh, 
uh, a lot of talk around the fact that some of these systems have required uh, quite a bit of servicing. Some haven't sort of worked properly when they arrived. But another speaker pointed out that actually you tend to get a lot more teething troubles with brand new systems. So the fact that, that Ukraine is receiving by and large systems that are uh, you know, not straight off production lines, um, that, that, that actually they may be a little more reliable because they've been sort of run in, tested and tried. And I'm not an expert on those, but uh, he, he, he said that there's a distinct advantage actually to some of these older systems rather than the new ones. Well, we shouldn't overgeneralize because there is a vast range of different equipment that is being provided to Ukraine. Some of it new, some of it of older generations, uh, and there won't be a one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Yes, in some cases, they have discovered that weapon systems that have been in storage for too long have not been adequately looked after and so are not being delivered in a condition to actually be used. In other cases, you appear to see vehicles arriving in Ukraine and effectively being driven straight to the front line. So there, there isn't a universal answer to that question. Uh, so we tackled one, I think, uh, in a big absence of imaginative thinking, and that is how you might, uh, you know, deal with a defeated Russia, maybe even a fragmented Russia, without strong sort of centralized power. That thinking perhaps is 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 not going on, or not going on to the extent that it should be. Another question that I've asked all the Chatham House speakers is the other piece of thinking that really should be at the forefront of our minds rather than the Russian nuclear threats and so on. And that is, what would a Russian victory look like? Now, even though that no longer looks as likely as it did a year ago, I think it's a useful exercise to try and understand, well, what would happen if Russia did take the entirety of Ukrainian territory? What would happen, not just to Ukrainians, which is terrible enough, but what would be the subsequent stages over the next decade uh, following a victory like that? Do you think that thinking is helpful and is it also not being done? Certainly it's not being done. And if it were being done, then we wouldn't have this problem where Russia's defeat is seen as far more potentially catastrophic than Russian victory. The problem with the scenario you've just outlined is that Russia doesn't actually need to conquer any more of Ukraine to have won. And that's the this huge strategic disparity between the two sides. In order to achieve victory or even some kind of acceptable, durable outcome to this conflict, Ukraine needs to achieve some major strategic breakthrough, some major strategic victory to evict Russia, Russia from its territory. Russia, by contrast, just needs to sit where it is and absorb the punishment. And if anybody declares a ceasefire at any point, they have won because they have taken the territory that they're looking for, can take a breather, and can relaunch their offensive again when they feel strong and confident enough to do so. So there is an enormous disparity in terms of the the requirements on each side for actually achieving a, 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 a viable outcome from this conflict. If Russia were to succeed, there is nothing to change the Russian idea that this was a good idea to embark on in the first place. That's why the defeat of Russia is so absolutely essential, because it is only that that will change minds ever, not only in the Kremlin, but throughout Russian society, about whether Russia has the, the right to an empire and about whether achieving it through military reconquest is actually the, the appropriate way to give up, go about asserting that right. The defeat and some kind of strategic setback for Russia, some kind of uh, a visible and undeniable setback that is is publicly humiliating for Russia has long been identified as the only thing that will start to change minds about whether Russia is an empire and about whether the time of empires in Europe is over. 
that won't be a rapid process, of course, because Russia will not go through the same kind of transformation process that Germany or Japan had to, to extirpate, their, extirpate their imperialist urges. Those countries had to be occupied. They had to be um, subjugated, in effect. They had to have their entire educational system, constitution, government overhauled and replaced with something new in order to remove that imperialist urge. That's not going to happen to Russia. So it's going to be a far, far longer and slower process, akin to some of those that you've seen other empires in Europe go through once they have that strategic setback and start to reassess their place in the world. But the key point is, it's not going to happen unless Russia is dealt a defeat in Ukraine. And that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because again, there's another piece of thinking which... Uh for obvious reasons, I don't think Ukrainians want to or should be imagining what a post-imperial Russia looks like. I mean, they, they want to really focus on their own territory. And of course, you know, if we look at what they're losing, it's not at the scale yet, but you could compare, you know, the loss of Ukrainian talent to what happened in the 1920s and the, the extermination of the Ukrainian Renaissance then. So it's not up to Ukraine to define what a future Russia looked like. But again, if we are going to live harmoniously with with a, a, a post-imperial Russia, we ought to be thinking about what that should look like and what can bring value to Russians and Russian culture uh, once the imperial element's taken away. Because it seems to be a core part of, uh, whether it be sort of literature culture, but certainly uh, you know the militaristic culture that we see, not just under Putin, but going back decades and centuries, um, that's a piece of thinking I don't think anyone is, is really doing, and I'm not even sure the Russian opposition are really digging deep into that one yet. Well, I'm not sure there, there is a Russian opposition that really disapproves of the idea of imperial Russia. Uh, there are not that many oppositionists who actually say that uh, Russia uh, invading Ukraine is a terribly bad idea and really it shouldn't be invading anywhere and should stay within its own borders, its own borders as allocated in 1991, which is very different from the mental framework and the mental map of where Russians think their power as a state should actually extend. But you said, should we prepare? How should we imagine for uh, a post-imperial Russia and a harmonious relationship with it? I'm sorry to say that we will never see that. It's not going to happen in our lifetimes or in the lifetimes of most of the people in Ukraine now, because it is going to be such a slow and such a difficult process that we will never see it happen. Precisely because all of those elements of that culture that lead to this decision to, to wage the genocidal war in Ukraine are so deeply embedded in society and in Russian culture and history. And uprooting those is not going to happen in anything less than a few generations after the process has started. And the problem we have now is the process has not started. And I think I can't recall whether it's the point you made or, or someone else in, in a previous video, but you know, many were saying that uh, you know Russia was going through its equivalent of the uh, the Weimar moment uh, in the 90s, but actually someone pointed out that no, that moment perhaps has not even happened yet. The big defeat in the war hasn't happened, and then the consequent bitterness that follows that, the recriminations, and the then you know the move to extremist politics. Um, I guess in Russia, that's all the, the elements of that are happening already at the moment. But do you think there will be this sort of toxic 
inward uh, sort of uh, movement in Russia uh, following what I believe will happen, which is, a, which is a large and shocking defeat for them sometime this year, next year, or at the latest, 2025. Well, the problem with that analogy is that in a way, we're already there. Now, the people who talk about the, the dangers of humiliating Russia like to draw parallels with the Treaty of Versailles and what happened to Germany. And they uh, it's, a, it's a slightly flawed view of exactly how that historical process worked. But according to the, the traditional format, uh, Germany's stab in the back myth exacerbated by reparations from, from Western countries leads to the, the resentment which leads to the rise of totalitarianism and the indoctrination of entire generation of German youth, which then goes on the rampage across Europe. Europe. All of those elements are actually already there in Russia. They've had the defeat at the end of the Cold War. They've had the, the humiliation, although it's a fictitious one. It's one that has been backgrafted onto Russian history to try to justify so much of what happened afterwards, uh, where throughout the 90s, as anybody that was there knows for sure, it was not a case of the West exploiting Russia, excluding it and trying to, to milk its resources. Instead, resources were pouring into Russia, the financial aid, the food aid, when Russia was not in a, a fit state to feed itself and so on. Nevertheless, that's been obscured through history now. And it is part of the central mythology that for over a decade now has been instrumental in forming this resentful youth, this youth that feels that it needs to march on Europe in order to reassert Russia's might. And the parallels between Russia and Nazi Germany are now almost as strong as they were during Soviet times. And let's not forget, those two regimes were so close that it's now a crime in Russia to actually mention that they were so close. Comparisons between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union have been criminalized. But you don't need to criminalize comparison between black and white because it's obvious they're not the same. And let's tackle one of the fallacies that really leads directly from this and from a potential Russian defeat. And that is uh, a very ardent argument that you hear perhaps more on the sort of extreme left uh, when you're looking at sort of, you know, Russian uh, uh, mouthpieces or, or assets, and that is that Russian security concerns must be respected. Behind that is the argument that Russia has been invaded so many times in history, blah, blah, blah. Um, the outcome of this war, of course, is going to be, uh, already is, a much longer NATO border with Russia, but also a NATO that is not hibernating, a NATO that understands its role, that has renewed commitment from its members, has new members as well, and one of the things that, that really, I, I guess, shouldn't have shocked me, but did, was flying into Zsasha uh, Airport in Poland uh, on the border with Ukraine and seeing batteries of Patriot missiles lining the runway of a civilian airport. That really created a very strong impression that what you're looking at is an extremely armed to the teeth, fortified Europe um, that is taking shape on that eastern border. Yeah, certainly Russia has reminded NATO what it's actually for in the first place. This narrative of Russian security concerns, of course, falls apart as soon as you prod at it, because it is only sustainable if you accept that Russia's security concerns are, they extend over the territory of other countries, and they also trump the security interests of other countries. The, the argument that Russia has these superior rights is vested in a very old-fashioned idea of Russia being a superior country, certainly one that Russia would like us to subscribe to as well, but it's simply not compatible with respect for those countries that are around Russia's periphery and that we think 
should be sovereign independent countries. And of course, there is the, the central irony that it, the only country that doesn't respect Russia's borders is Russia itself. It's the only country that wants to revise them to push forward. Everybody else is, is quite accepting of the fact that territory has been lost to Russia in the past, whether it's Kaliningrad, whether it's Karelia, etc. It is only Russia that is the revisionist. And so these security concerns are created by Moscow, and of course, exacerbated by Moscow, because as you mentioned, NATO now has woken up and realized what the problem is, precisely as a result of Moscow doing what it does. And the last question I think here uh, is, is in fallacy number three in the Chatham House, it talks about Ukraine needing to adopt neutrality, which I think in the current circumstances uh, is, is you know, beyond uh, absurd. But it's also been highlighted recently by the, uh, the rumours, probably more than rumours, that China is now uh, supplying Russia massively with equipment, not just the odd component here or there or, you know, under the counter food supplies or whatever. There's talk now of uniforms, night scopes, battlefield drones, a huge uptick in military equipment. Now, this raises an interesting question about the idea of neutrality, proxy wars and so on. How do we deal with China? How do we deal with Iran and North Korea, who seem to be very invested in a Russian victory? Well, unfortunately, just because an idea is is beyond absurd doesn't pe doesn't stop people coming on out with it over and over again. The the neutrality for Ukraine argument will not die, uh, regardless of the fact that it is obvious to anybody that considers it that neutrality didn't serve Ukraine before 2014 because it was a a non-aligned state then, and look where it ended up. Neutrality just makes it a softer target for Russia, but the increasing involvement of of other countries backing. Russia and other countries supporting Russia in its campaigns in Ukraine is an indication of the deficiencies of what the coalition to support Ukraine from the Western side is actually doing. If there had been sufficient support to, to Ukraine that the victory over the Russian invader and the eviction of those invaders from the occupied territories was not in doubt, then those other countries like Iran or China would not be now deciding that it's actually perfectly safe to support Russia. It is an indictment of the half-hearted support that we've seen from some, not all, from some partners in that coalition, that we're now in this situation where everybody that is expressing an opinion about what is necessary for Ukraine to push forward, including those within the Western militaries, knows perfectly well what is required, but Western governments, primarily the United States, is simply not willing to provide it because of this terror of defeating Russia. So the last question then is what do we need to do in order to back Ukraine to win rather than survive? And how can individuals watching this channel help? I mean, we'll write into their MPs, their congressmen, uh, you know, their political leaders. What is going to help actually move us into that high gear which saves Ukrainian lives and hastens their victory? There's a recurrent danger of getting fixated on one particular weapon system as the magic bullet that is going to, to solve Ukraine's problems. And we've seen this go through repeated fads and repeated phases when it's HIMARS and then it's ATACMS and then it's main battle tanks, then it's F-16s. 
but that tends to obscure all of the other things that are going on, the massive volumes of weaponry that are being supplied by countries, including the United States, that aren't the, just the current object of fashion. So all of these uh, these peaks of vogue for particular weapon systems are, are pointing really to the fact that we go through this same repetitive cycle every time one of them is identified as being required. Now, the the officials in Western governments that uh, that are talking about the length of time that it takes to deliver one of these tend to focus on technical aspects like the logistics, the training, the infrastructure support, and so on, and to omit any mention of the long political holdup that preceded that, which in many cases is actually longer than that. After all, 18 months to, to move from first discussion of providing combat aircraft uh, to Ukraine to the United States actually releasing the brakes on a program for, for providing F-16s at some later date. And that cycle goes, goes over and over again. So in terms of what Ukraine actually needs for victory, uh, yes, there are the high-profile faddish weapon systems that, that are necessary not only for victory in Ukraine now, but also for a longer-term, ongoing, stable and secure Ukraine that can defend itself against Russia in the future as well. But there's also the day-to-day. -day. There are the supplies of the equipment that, that Ukraine actually needs for its counteroffensive, and there far less glamorous things have been identified. It's ongoing supplies of, um, of equipment that individual soldiers need, for example. The, the appeals that go out for things as prosaic as uh, air defenders, for instance, point to needs that are still not filled with, across the Ukrainian armed forces. So my suggestion for anybody that does want to help like that is, Keep your ear to the ground. Listen out for what the appeals that are coming directly from those Ukrainian armed forces units are actually asking for and look to see where you can help there. That's good advice. And I think for those who are watching this who are not yet tuned into the NAFO network, there are actually many, many Ukrainian uh, service people on on uh, the sort of on, on Twitter via NAFO. And uh, you can actually reach out and get a, a pretty good sense of what people need um, and, and also stories of uh, what they're experiencing at the front, which is, which is uh, often uh, pretty, pretty horrific. Uh, Kira, these are fantastic insights. Thank you so much. Thank you also for being incredibly supportive of this series of interviews uh, with Chatham House experts and, of course, uh, in uh, supporting the work of the channel. Thank you, Jonathan.